Happy New Year. Good to see you guys here. Well, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 11, continuing our series through 1 Samuel. We're going to be starting the book of Psalms Sunday mornings, just so you guys know if you are interested. We're not going to go verse by verse through the whole book of Psalms because we'd be there for a few years probably, Um, but we are going to pick out some Psalms or some parts of Psalms uh, that stand out and go through those as well, so I'm excited about that anyway. But right now, we're in Samuel. One of the great things about the scripture is there are so many lessons that we can learn without having to go through them ourselves. You guys have all learned things the hard way. We all do. You find out if you run into a wall with your face, you're going to smash your nose. And then you put a mental note, don't run into a wall with face because you smash your nose. But there are so many lessons in life to learn that we could not possibly learn them all without devastating our lives. So thankfully, there are examples in Scripture for us to look and say, oh, this is what happens if, and this is what happens when, so that we can learn by these examples. And it helps us not have to go through those same pitfalls that all these people have gone through, or the positive and be able to learn from those positive things that are helpful in life so that we can actually get from those things the things that benefit our life as well. And I think we have a great example of that here in chapter 11. Remember chapter 10 closed in this unusual coronation where Saul is now king and He was almost like, really? Is this really happening? He was hiding. They brought him out. Some of them went home and celebrated with him, were by his side. And then there were others who were complaining, who is this redneck from the country? That's a paraphrase. But they were basically not with Saul. How do we recognize this guy? Who put him as king? And so they weren't respecting his place as king. And that's kind of where we take up here in chapter 11. And let's go through and read Through verse 11, kind of get a gist of what's taking place. Nahash, the Ammonite, and his name means serpent, by the way. That's kind of interesting. The Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace to all of Israel. There's Okay, let's weigh this one out. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messenger came from Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. 
he took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions, during the last watch of the night, broke into the camp of the Ammonites, and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And we're going to stop right there. Here is a story. It starts off pretty dramatic. The Ammonites come to this city, Jabesh Gilead, and it gives them this proposition. Make a treaty. You know, they say, we're going to conquer you. They besiege them. They said, well, give us a chance to do something. And they say, well, okay, we'll give you a chance. Let us gouge out your right eye. Now, why would they say that? Well, you have to remember, in battle, you would hold your shield with your left arm and your sword or spear with your right arm. And so if your right eye is gone, in battle you're at a distinct disadvantage. The whole idea is we're going to cripple you as fighting men. You won't be able to battle against us because we'll just keep coming up to that side and you'll be kind of, where are you? You know, trying to swing around to see where they are. And then when you do this, we can hit you from the other side. You won't be able to fight. You need both those eyes to, to battle in that type of warfare. And, and so that was the idea behind that. And we have to look a little bit at what this city, Jabesh, Gilead is because they said, well, let us go and and get help. And why would they allow them time? Why would they say, okay, yeah, sure, go ahead and, and see if you can get some help from Israel? Why wouldn't they just invade them? Why are they delaying? And a lot of it has to do with the history of this city. They were on the other side of Jordan from a lot of the other tribes and cities, and they just had a bad history. When Michael was going through the book of Judges, he touched on some of these things regarding this city. And there's just this horrific story that takes place around chapter, I think, 19. And it goes through chapter 21 where this city comes into play. Where the people of Jabesh Gilead did not join the expedition of the Israelites against the tribe of Benjamin, who did some horrific things to one of the concubines of one of the Levites. And because they didn't join in with the tribes, they went into Jabesh Gilead and took all their women. Sounds like a movie. You know, they just went and we're going to go in and they took all the virgins and they took them out and they left this city kind of devastated because they were not part. It kind of was a part of a civil war that started taking place in the nation. And Jabesh Gilead was on the outside. They were not thought of highly by the rest of the nations because they did not come in support. And so they actually went in there and caused some 
trauma with them, their punishment. They destroyed the, the maidens, seized them, and they were given to the Benjamites, who they were actually at war against. It's a strange tale, but truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. And so this is the history of this city. They're not a city that was in good standings. And this took place, if not in the lifetime of Saul, at least in his parents' lifetime. So this isn't very old. This is still fresh on the minds of the people of Israel. And so now here comes this serpent, Nahash, the Ammonite, and he comes to the city and he besieges it. They're probably aware of the history No one's going to come to this city's aid because of who they are, because of the standing against them. But that's not what we see take place. Verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we'll surrender to you. They still sent out messengers for help. And what I think is interesting about this is that they didn't allow the past to decide their future. They didn't allow the hardship, the hurt, the animosity that was there in the past to dictate their actions in the future. They didn't say, well, there's no hope. These guys will never come to support us. Remember what they did to us before? They took all the maidens, gave them to the Benjamites. They they treated us terribly because we didn't come to their aid. No sense. Okay, we surrender. They still sent out word for help. And I wonder about us sometimes when we come to a place where we feel hopeless, where we feel like What has happened before is going to determine what will happen again. Have you guys ever been to a place where you just feel like your destiny is not to succeed because of bad things that have happened to you? We get into these places where sometimes I feel like, well, every time I I try this, I get knocked back down or I get set back. and, And it seems like every time I try, this happens again. And if you have this mindset of, all these defeats that have taken place in the past, then they're the things that dictate your future. All the things that you have failed in are the things that will now decide how you act. And if they dominate your thoughts, then pretty soon you're living in a defeated life and there is no hope. And that kind of thing can be crippling. Those are the kinds of things that can keep you from crying out to God, that can keep you from talking to people, from for asking for forgiveness, for forgiving. Well, I've forgiven them before. I know they're just going to do it again. So no sense forgiving them. After all, look at what they've done to me. And so now we are living our lives based on the failures of the past. But they still sent word out because they needed help and they gave them seven days to to come about this. And then comes Saul and he's out in the field behind some oxen. Again, he's now king of Israel, but he's still country boy, I guess, at heart. And he's still, still out in the field and he's doing this work. But when the word 
comes to him, what's wrong? Why is everyone weeping? And they tell him what's happened. Verse 6, it says, Then Saul heard their words, and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. I've got that highlighted because it's such a strange sentence, at least in our thinking, mine anyway. The Spirit of God came upon him powerfully, and he burned with anger. Do you usually think of those things as the same? The Spirit of God being powerfully upon you and then you burning with anger? Is that something that you put together? Not me, usually. Usually the Spirit of God comes upon me and I'm at peace. Not I burn with anger. But you see, that makes me think maybe I was filled with the Spirit and I didn't know it sometimes. Because I burned with anger many times. And it's such an interesting combination, don't you think? Now, what is an, an example you can think of where a person was filled with the Spirit and they burned with anger? Great example. Where someone was burning with anger, but Jesus was always moved by the Spirit. He was always empowered with the Spirit. And so what a great example. You can be moved with anger and be filled with the Spirit. I know, it's so strange. And now, well, how do I know? Well, I guess the results are what's going to determine if it's for just yourself or is it for others. In this case, he burned with anger for the people of Jabesh Gilead. Jesus burned with anger for the people who were not able to come in and worship at the temple. And so those are the kinds of things that stand out. You know, what is the determination and where are where is it taking you? Where is the anger leading you? Is it leading you to a place that's bad or is it leading you to a place of justice? And here it was a place of justice. There are times where things should anger us. Sex trafficking, that should anger us. You know, uh, abuse, child abuse, that, that should anger us. Those kinds of things should stir us up and get us angry and we can be powerfully moved upon the spirit at the same time and what also is interesting is as this happened verse 7 goes on it says he took a pair of oxen cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messenger throughout Israel proclaiming this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel I think it's interesting he throws Samuel's name in there because I don't know if they're going to follow me, but maybe they'll follow Samuel. I'm going to get a little, you know, credibility and endorsement here. And I'm with Samuel, the prophet. I don't know if Samuel, you know, threw in with this or he just threw Samuel in with it automatically. But that's the case. And this is an interesting thing because what he does here, I mean, it's very decisive, it's deliberate, and it's intentional in its action. There's no confusion. He's clear in what he's presenting. He's calling everybody and he's making it clear that if they are not with him, that it's going to have consequences. And the slicing up of the oxen is actually very similar to what happened to the concubine of the Levite, if you remember back in chapter, I think it was 19, of Judges when she was mistreated horrifically and raped and left for dead. And 
then her body was cut up into 12 pieces and sent to all the tribes saying, do you see what they have done, which caused the war? And so now Saul is doing something similar, but with an ox, sending it out and saying, I'm serious. And so that leads me to believe that there is a connection with this city and what has happened in this city and the events that led and were part of all this in the history. It's a graphic description. We're going to take your ox. We're going to slaughter them if you don't come and support us. Now, remember, this guy is powerfully moved by the spirit. Interesting that this would be part of his action. But what I think is really interesting is that being empowered by the spirit led to action. In other words, he wasn't empowered by the spirit and did nothing or did things that uh, resulted in nothing. In other words, he didn't, you know, get filled with the spirit and then he, he sat and he just prayed. Nothing wrong with praying, but he acted and actually did something. When the spirit came upon the people in Acts chapter 2, it was from that point that God started multiplying the church and then thousands were saved and came to faith. There was an action that resulted from the empowering. And I think when we are empowered by the Spirit, it produces action. And here it's the action for the benefit of these people of Jabesh Gilead. And so he moves them into this place of battle. Empowered by the Spirit, he gathers all these people. And then it says in verse, well, finishing verse 7, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. It says, then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out together as one. There's another interesting term, the terror of the Lord came upon. When you think of terror, do you think of the Lord? I think of those movies, you know, paranormal activity. That's the terror, you know, that that shadow thing that comes at you at night when they, you know, those commercials are amazing. And so when I think of terror, that's what I think of. But the terror of the Lord. What do you think that means? Let me ask you guys. What is the terror of the Lord? Do you think, I mean, are, let me see, are you thinking like God's, like they felt the wrath of God towards the Ammonites? Is that what you're saying? Or Okay. Yeah, the fear of the Lord is another translation. Other thoughts on this? Well, I believe that this terror of the Lord is connected to what God is doing through Saul and is connected to the sign that Saul sent to the people. In other words, Saul sent a pretty horrific consequence. If you don't come fight with us, we're going to slaughter your oxen. And then the terror of the Lord filled the people. In other words, they were like, oh gosh, we don't want that to happen. That fearful feeling of, oh no, we don't want to be against what is taking place. And so it would seem to me contextually that this is connected to the power of God's spirit moving upon Saul, giving this example of what's going to happen, and then the people responding to it with this 
fear and awareness of God is acting and we have the opportunity to work with him or against him. And the against him in their minds right now is our oxen are going to be slaughtered or harm is going to come to us. I think it would be, I mean, the fear of the Lord is one of those tricky things that we've talked about before in some length because I think it's an important thing to recognize. If you fear God, that sets the level of what you need to fear very high. And if there's nothing higher than God, then I don't need to fear anything less than him. But what I do need to do is recognize him fully. What would happen in our lives if we recognized that when we go against God, the consequences to our life are pretty horrific? If that's the fear of the Lord, I'm not going to do anything that is against God. Our lives would be very good. And I believe here what the example is, is the fear of the Lord coming upon them is that if we don't side up with what is being asked of us, then the consequences are grave. And I think that is something that should grip our hearts too. Again, the idea of fearing God is a strange one for us because we know that God is love. But the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. And it's not a a slavish terror that pushes us away. What it is is a healthy recognition of who he is and how much we need him. And so this fear or the terror of the Lord that came upon them moved them to unity of purpose in line with what Saul was asking them to do, and he was empowered by the Spirit. I do not understand how God works all the time. Every time I think I've got a little bit of a handle, the handle moves. Or the steering wheel goes to the, you know, wrong side of the car kind of a thing. It's like, no, God, this is how the streets are. And it's like, no, you're in Europe now. Drive over here. He always has this ability to expand how I limit him. And here's an example where God is moving among the people where the power, the spirit comes on Saul powerfully. He burns with anger. He sends out this message. The people are feared, filled with the terror of the Lord and they unite together to do something. And it's how God works and how he moves in this instance. It's not how he always moves, but it is how he moved here. And it's an odd thing, and it's a a strange thing, but it should always make us recognize that when God is speaking, we really need to listen. And if God is asking something of us, we really need to take heed to what he wants. There should be that fear of the Lord. And the fear isn't like, well, God's going to kill me. The fear is, I'm going to separate myself from the only one who can save me. And that's a terrible place to be. Make sense? Any thoughts? I I see you thinking, no, you're not. (laughs) 
it's very deep and it's encompassing and it it's something every parent wants to instill in their children you know the fear of the consequences of bad choices the fear of you know that thing that is going to bring devastation to your life um and ultimately that's a lack of recognition of god in our lives so any questions on that or any anyone want to jump into this pool and what a change in Saul, isn't this? From what we saw last chapter, him hiding, and then it's just so timid, and all of a sudden, boom, this guy is coming out, both barrels. Even though they didn't have guns, he was ready to go. You know, he, he's, he mustered them up at Bezek in verse 8. The men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. And then they told the messenger that, hey, we're going to come, we're going to rescue. And so the people were rejoicing just because of that. They're going to be rescued. And then they tell, hey, tomorrow we'll, we'll surrender ourselves to you because they're figuring, okay, if they don't come by tomorrow noon, then we're going to lose our eyes, and then that's how it's going to work out. And so they play it. Here's our hand. We'll come out tomorrow. So the Ammonites are suspecting that, okay, it's done. It's good as done. And so in verse 11, the next day, Saul separated his men. He see this you know, divide and conquer kind of thing. He separates the people, they come in, and they just lay waste to them. And all those who survived scattered so that there weren't two together, and they just run off. And so the battle takes place. It's a huge victory. And then immediately what takes place in chapter 11, in verse 12, it says, the people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. They got blood in, on, you know, they've tasted blood now. It's like, we've been killing, let's kill some more. I mean, they're just in this fury. Remember those guys who weren't with Saul? Bring them out here. If they're not with us, we're going to kill them too. What is it about people that are so quick to just bring judgment? Isn't it amazing? It's like you didn't get enough. You, you slaughtered these people. Okay, yeah, we're going to just keep going. We're going to wipe out everything. And, and in, instead of this righteous anger going up to the place where it should have, they want to take it further. And that so echoes, I think, what happens in Christendom is, you know, the fear of God is there and the boundaries of God are there. Oh, yeah, well, we're going to make them there and we're going to make them clearer. And so we're going to push it more. And now we're going to require these things, even though God hasn't required them. We're going to add these things and we're going to make sure that our standards are set and we're going to be there and we're going to bring justice to everyone and that's why the church historically has killed off its wounded and its own and that's what they're doing it's like okay bring those who were against Saul now we'll put them to death too well that's not the enemy they were the enemy not not these people and it's so interesting that they want to keep going further. Verse 13, but Saul said, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. God had a purpose. It was to rescue his people. We're not going to start killing the people that we're supposed to be rescuing. There's a lesson there. 
there's a lesson there. We're not to be killing the people that are to be rescued. They just wanted to continue this rampage, but Saul said no. Now, we need to learn from Saul now, and we're going to have to learn from Saul again later. Saul is one of those examples where we see something start off good but not end well. But here we see Saul showing mercy. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and all of Israel held a great celebration. So here's coronation number two. The first one was kind of, yay. The second one is, yeah, we're in this now. We, we recognize this. We're there. We're all in now. And, and so now it, it gets accepted and, and it has the, the stamp of approval. Why? Because there was victory. Because Saul took action that resulted in a victory. We talked in the past about those who take the role and initiate change are the ones that people will follow. They weren't ready to follow Saul until he initiated something that resulted in a change. And then they saw, okay, this person is legit. They're the real deal. What they said came to pass. They moved us forward. And so now we can follow them because he was a person of intention, a person who got things done. We've talked about being those kinds of people who intend on doing something and seeing it get done. There are so many things to be done. The harvest is plentiful. Where are the labors? They're the people who are intentionally going out and doing things, whatever things they are. Corrine was looking up some things for people who are homeless and resources that are available and the different organizations, one's called PATH, people, I forget what it stands for, the homeless is the last two People, it's not against the homeless because they're for the homeless. People assisting the homeless, I think it is. <clears throat> yeah, people assisting the homeless, I believe it's called. And I remember going to a, a meeting, yeah, people against the homeless, people of intention. Um, yeah. I remember going out to L.A. and going to one of the functions, this place path out in L.A., and it was amazing. And we talked to the guy who runs the police place, and the guy was just a man of ideas. I mean, he had incredible ideas and was facilitating things that were just above and beyond what most places are doing as far as for the homeless. The president had actually contacted this guy and wanted to find out his view on what to do with the homeless because he was making such radical changes that were effective. 
And it's because he had some thinking and he went forward and started implementing these things and got people on board. He was a person of intention and now he's doing incredible things. And that's what it takes. A lot of us just want to get there and find someone who's leading and that's okay because they're leading us someplace. But there are other people that really just want to take things to the next step and move forward. People who intend to lead and can be followed. And those things are important. And that's why these people unified. That's why they were able to get together is because Saul took action for the people of Israel. They saw it. There is an underlining lesson that I just think is something, one of those things for us to learn. This city, Jabesh Gilead, was not popular, was not thought of well. But when they heard what was happening to them, Saul acted mercifully, generously towards them. Saul showed kindness and support to this city that was considered an outcast city. And we would see later on, even though Saul became a person confused, a person who resisted God, who then actually wanted to kill David, who was being anointed by God and ended up dying with his sons in a horrific death. And then his body and that of his sons were strung up and hanged and left there as an example. It was the people of Jabesh Gilead that came in 1 Samuel 31 and took down his body and buried it. And they did that because of what Saul had done for them. In other words, they remembered the kindness and they repaid kindness to this man who was pretty messed up. Not only that, David in 2 Samuel praises the people of Jabesh Gilead for their kindness. And so the kindness of Saul led to these people showing kindness to him, led to David recognizing their kindness, and it all began here. It all began with Paul's I mean Saul's actions of generosity, of mercy and kindness to this group of people. And it was that rippling effect, even as we talked about Sunday, about connecting the dots. Well, this is how the dots connect with Saul. He does something good, and later on, it results in people being kind to him. It results in David recognizing the kindness because of the kindness that Saul showed. And so it's important that we recognize the things that we do have lasting effect. They will endure long past the actions themselves. And we need to recognize those things so that we can allow our actions to move us forward and not just be stuck in the moment in those things. Anyone have any Words on those things? Father, we do thank you for the example of Saul here.
Lord, being a man who acted decisively and generously and mercifully. And Lord, we see that when you empower someone, you empower them to do and to act. We pray you would empower us, Lord. You would help us to be people of decision, people of intention, and people of kindness, Lord, to those who are in need. May we know where the boundaries are, Lord, and may we not seek out vengeance where you don't seek it, Lord. May we entrust those things to you. We do pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.